This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Steve Martirano. You're invited to join us for each and every one of these programs as we speak to a lot of uh, very uh, expert people in the field of behavioral health. And we're going to tell you all about what that umbrella term means, fostering diverse and meaningful conversation on substance abuse and mental health issues. Mental health being the primary focus of this program. Uh, as we often uh, do, we avail ourselves of, uh, of our great patron and good friend, Peter Shore. Peter is the founder and CEO <coughs> of Retreat Behavioral Health, who, as you know, if you've been hearing any of the programs, has now broadened their portfolio of services that they often uh, offer to include a sort of freestanding focus on mental health issues apart from substance abuse issues, which they still handle and always have for all along. That That's called synergy, and we're going to find out about that and many other things with our friend uh, Peter Schur. Peter, thanks for joining us again on the program. Thank you, Steve. Now, we are, uh, we're sitting here on Saturday. Just a few days ago, uh, you guys, uh, Retreat Behavioral Health, opened the second of, I, I call them kind of satellite facilities. Well, it's really the third, because we have the one in, in Akron, Pennsylvania also. So we opened... Uh, about a month ago, we opened in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, uh, and and this past Thursday, we opened in Philadelphia on the University of Pennsylvania campus. Well, we're going to find out um, what you know what what they are all about, what they are intended to do. Um, but let's go. Let's take a look now at uh, the change that's going on here uh, at 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 retreat. You guys are are well known, renowned, I would say in the field of substance abuse, have been for a long time. And anybody who knows anything about treating substance abuse knows that there's a mental health component baked right into that anyway. But but you guys have done something, um, I guess, new, certainly new for you guys, and, and, and developed a whole strategy for dealing primarily with the mental health issue in the form of uh, uh, something called synergy. Tell us about synergy. It, it's not something new that we've done. This is something we've done all along, but this is something that we're able to do outside of substance use disorder. Uh, we've always treated patients on a holistic kind of level where we would we would treat everything. And mental health aspect of it was really important because if that gets un, untreated, nothing's ever going to change. What we're fortunate now to have a, a mental health license that, and we're treating people who are coming in that they don't have substance abuse problems. They're coming in just for mental health problems. And that's something that we're able to do now, which is a little game changer for us and, and really helps our patients, even with substance abuse uh, disorder, that they're able to get, uh, you know, f- further mental health counseling besides the substance abuse also. We have a, a whole lot of questions about how that would work. I, I would guess that after you treat somebody for and you get a handle on their substance abuse issue, that's under control. The underlying mental health issues may still be there. So they could just very easily pivot to the services of, of, of synergy. Is that the way that would work? Yeah. I mean, what what you usually see is people who suffer from substance use disorder – a lot of time, and it's it's a really big percentage of it have have mental health problems that have gone untreated and 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 undiagnosed many in many instances, and and that in itself is a reason to use and abuse because it's you know what do we do when we're not we're feeling sad or depressed or something like that? We want to numb ourselves, and we numb ourselves by using some substance that's going to change the way we feel. I think more people who might be listening to this program know people who are suffering from some kind of, I don't mean to trivialize this, but garden variety mental health issue that's completely distinct from um, 
from a substance abuse problem. And, I, and I'm talking about the stuff that we see overwhelmingly going on with anxiety, uh, depression, and um, I guess bo- bo- some bipolar issues to maybe a lesser extent, certainly suicidal thoughts. Is Synergy a reaction to the possibility that some of those people were falling through the, the behavioral health gap there, not, not being addressed because they didn't have a substance abuse problem? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something that's always been like that. People don't know where to go. They don't have the res- They don't know what resources they can tap into to get help for their loved ones or themselves. Uh, you know, we we talked about having a uh, an open panel discussion about mental health in our youth, and the questions asked by these young people of who it's amazing a fourteen year old would ask a question, but what do I do? I you know I feel depressed. If I go to my parents, they say, just buckle up, you'll be fine. If I go to school, they, you know, they're inundated by so many different things. They don't have time for me. What do I do? You know, I, I feel so down. I feel so alone. And it could be anybody. Everyone thinks it's, it's, it's a specific kind of person that feels that way. But if you would have saw this young girl who came up and asked her, beautiful young girl, does great in school. But outside things happen. Her, you know, she, her father had killed himself. And it was something that weighed heavy on her head, and, and she didn't know what to do. You know, you can't just say, buckle up. It was like years ago in, the, in, in our industry where people would say, just say no to drugs. It's not that easy. It's, it's more complicated. And there's a lot of different kinds of therapies that you can tap into that are going to help you. Well, well in that light, in that light you, one can completely appreciate why uh, a behavioral health facility um, like Retreat w- would um – conceive of this notion of synergy, which is uh, a kind of adjunct to it. So we know what synergy means, so these things work together. But but what you've just described seems to me to be something that's, um, first of all, can lead to substance abuse if not addressed real quickly. People just, you're right, people just, you don't go to your emergency room just because you're anxious or depressed, although you need some kind of medical help. Some people you, do. Some people go, and, and again, you know, if we inundate our emergency rooms with things like that, they're not equipped for that. They're equipped for, you know, it's a triage. They, they're there. Well, how can I help you immediately? And this is not an immediate thing. This is a, a process that can take a while. So so tell us how it works at now three facilities in Akron, Lansdale, Pennsylvania, and uh, and now on the campus at the University of Pennsylvania. How, how would it work? Somebody's sitting around depressed, maybe having suicidal thoughts. What are the... How do they interface with Synergy? Well, Synergy is a, is a program designed for our mental health patients. Uh, again, getting them in front of professionals, talking about There's a lot of different techniques to use, uh, you know, uh, DBT and CBT and, and, and uh, 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 what's it called? ACT. ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which is which really is – is taking what they're what they're feeling and their negative feelings and talking about it and finding out, you know, how can we work our way through these things? A lot of young people, they come and they, they, they're afraid to talk about their problems. They're afraid, it's not just young people, old people too. And they feel like going to be judged. You know, when you come in front of a professional, if that's a real good professional, they're not there to judge you. They're not there to tell you what you have to do. They're there to guide you and listen to what you have to say. And help you get through this process because, you know, hopelessness is a terrible feeling. 
hopelessness is what what leads to addiction, what leads to suicide, what leads to things like that. So we need to work on the hopelessness part of it and find out how can we motivate and get them and talk about what the, what their feelings are and and how they're feeling all these negative things and 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 suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideations. How do we get above that? How do we get them to open up and talk about it? Well, we've talked about this several times with the, with your colleagues and others in the field of mental health treatment, and it's always occurred to me hearing the stories that mental health problems are particularly heartbreaking and difficult because the very thing we use our reason our mind, our intelligence, our thoughts to solve problems, whatever those problems are, is what's wrong. We're not thinking clearly. We're feeling overwhelmed by certain things. So the first problem is getting somebody to, to recognize that. They're trying to think their way out of this and it's not <coughs> working. So when I come into a Synergy or Retreat Behavioral Health Facility, either on the Penn campus or in Akron, who am I going to see and what am I going to tell them? Well, you, you're going to see a, a, a therapist, and you get an assessment. You know, and it's funny what you just said about, you know, people not understanding what, how they're feeling and, 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 and who do they talk to and what do they do. A lot, a lot of people realize that there's something different, something's wrong, something's, it's just not the norm. What do, what do I do? Where, where do I go? You know, we wanted to have a, a, a place where, you know, not just to be where you go for the treatment, but to be a resource to get you to where you need to be. And we talk about this all the time, about retreat being a resource, especially for our communities. So open these little community-based centers in, in these different cities, and we, we, we have plans to open several more, becomes a resource for that community. So that community can come and reach out. And not may not be the patient. It may be the family members to ask questions like, you know, I'm seeing patterns like this. What do I do? Who do I call? What do I do? And and it's good to come in, get an assessment, find out what, you know, our professionals can can diagnose and, and, and our doctors can diagnose and see what the what the treatment that needs to be done that gets laid out for you. What's interesting about that is that you're you're getting closer to the ground in, in, in one sense with these problems. And I'm wondering if if what you're doing with the, with these new facilities in the communities is, in a sense, not unlike the proliferation of these acute care minute clinic kinds of situations now where yeah. people can go the, and get some the, physical the, help. These urgent care centers. Right. So it, it is a similar, a similar premise where you want to have an, an urgent care center for mental health. Because, you know, a lot of times mental health is not like that. It's not immediate. You know, it's a process that right. happens. If you, you break know, yeah. your arm, you know right. you, you, know you your broke arm. your arm. If, right. you know, if, but, you know, some people are suffering from depression. They don't know where to go. If there's a, a community center that they can go to and feel safe and comfortable, they're going to go to that place. The same thing they go, you know, when you go to an urgent care center, like you say, if, you know, I hurt my arm, I need to go get it checked out. I'm going to go to a place immediately. So so you are new in the, I mean, uh, um is retreat ahead of the curve on this, this this notion of putting these facilities closer to the problem, as it were? I, I, I think so. I mean, that was our whole concept and our whole idea was to, to, to be innovative, to be, uh, you know, to do something different for people who are suffering from mental illness. It's something that's so prominent now and so talked about. You hear about suicides every day. Someone's killing themselves. For what? 
You know, when they, there's help out there, they just need to learn how to tap into it. Le- leading, I think it's a leading cause of death of adolescents, I think. So, is yeah, it? it's, it's it, and you hear about it in schools. I mean, I, you know, I'm down in Florida a lot, and I was with the Palm Beach County uh, Commissioner of Schools and saying, day one, first day of school, four people. Why? Yeah, every day we read Why? another story just what recently. What can be so bad with young people that they need to feel the, re- the, the need to, to take their own lives? They don't understand what life is, yeah. number one. Yeah. So you need to have those resources. Well, the darkness can get, uh, you know, you know, pretty dark. Yeah, hopelessness uh, is terrible. Yeah, Peter Shure is our guest, founder and CEO of Retreat Behavioral Health. We have more with Peter straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Our guest and good friend, Peter Shure. Peter is the founder and CEO of Retreat Behavioral Health. He's here uh, today to talk to us about some exciting developments that are going on in the behavioral health field in general, specifically what's going on with regard to retreat behavioral health uh, programs and their mental health uh, services now in the form of synergy health programs, which is what we're talking about. Uh, uh, Peter, I I suspect, I don't suspect, I know, that at at any age, any period of time in, in the past, people have sat around going, this is the golden age of crazy. Things couldn't possibly be worse than this. We're certainly deep into that now. Um, so let's, cl- let's, let's, let's be clear. Are we experiencing as a society a genuine mental health crisis? And if we are, what are some of the factors contributing? Right. I mean, and that's a good question. And, and the answer is, is it's pretty simple. Are we experiencing any more as, on a percentage wise than we've always had? Honestly, I couldn't tell you that answer, but what it is now is that through social media, through all kinds of information that's handled immediately, we know about it more. We hear about it more. People have a way to express themselves more through social media, through different kinds of of forms of, of, of the internet and talk about it. So we hear news is like this now. News is in a flash. Years ago, you know, if you if you said something to someone, but before it got to 500 people, it could take a few days. Now it takes a matter of seconds. So we're hearing about it. Uh, there is a lot of uncertainty going on, especially with young people. Uh, a lot of fear in in their futures, and you hear that if you if you talk to to our our younger generation, that the biggest fear is what am I going to do with myself? And again, you know, video games and 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 all this cell phones and things like that have kind of caused people not to explore more of themselves. Uh, not everyone. I don't, I don't want to generalize because I know a lot of young people are not like that. And I know a lot of young people who are in recovery that have seen what it's like to see the depth of, of, of depression and, and having nothing and came back and you know, got degrees, and now are, are giving back to what they learn, but it doesn't happen all the time. I mean, it, it's it's something that it, it's a little different for the generations now because they just don't know what's going to be. And uncertainty causes what? It causes you to be, you know, anxious, even anxiety. more uncertain. Yeah, right. I mean, and ang- it causes anxiety, and anxiety causes a lot of different aspects of what goes on in, in mental health. I think f- for me, the point you made just then, which is the most uh, obvious, is that while things have always plagued us as a society, um, it's not so much that we have worse problems that cause anxiety and depression, but that there is no respite from them, yeah. particularly young people. Young people are never off the clock now. They are constantly in, in the arena. There's no no other way to to put it they're they're 
influenced by Instagram. They're yeah. bullied by uh, uh, Twitter. Um, that's that's created a tremendous toll on mental health, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, and and you use the word influence because people who have big followings on these on these social media are called influencers, and the people who are doing these influencing, why? I mean, some of them have. You know, she's good looking, so she influences a lot of people. That's not the reason. You have to have substance. You have to have something behind you. You know, you you want to. You know, I know someone had, as as me growing up, and how I learned is by learning from people who knew more than I did, and not because of how they looked or what they did. They knew more. They had something to give me back in knowledge, and nothing's better than knowledge. A couple of things that are interesting or different about this generation than perhaps our generation. And that is that they they uh, we went to school. Um, I'm not that much older than you. We we went to school and were taught to duck and cover because <laughs> there were thermonuclear weapons that were going to yeah. annihilate us. And for the most part, if you were like me, you went, yeah, all right, whatever you say. I mean, it didn't sort of register on us. Now we didn't go to school uh, with with the notion that at other schools, at other times in the recent past, people were shot to death. In, in front of their classmates. Yeah, it's frightening. That's a different, that's a different magnitude of, of uh, problems, isn't it? Yeah. And, and again, what I, what I said earlier, is you hear about it immediately. You know, a lot of these things went on in, in society for years, but you never heard about it because there was no way to get that information all over the place. But, you know, it's got to be frightening for, for a, a young person to be at school and not know if I'm safe. You know what you you talk about when we, when we were growing up, you had these you know nuclear uh, fire drills where you had to go to a fallout shelter, and I remember those distinctly. And then, and I don't remember being afraid. I remember making you know you know they made it fun, but it, but if you thought about what it, what it was, that was annihilation of all the human race. But. But now, just but we didn't know anybody didn't know. who had been blown up by a exactly. nuclear bomb, right? And now you, you hear about it. It's almost in every community where there's there's a oh there was a, a threat today. There was this. There was that. It's got to be frightening for kids. I, I feel for them. Well, one of the things that we we uh, professionals in your field uh, are probably confronted with is uh, young people. Th- these things may be having an impact on them, but it's not an. They don't act on it overtly, just like you and I weren't frightened about the threat of nuclear war. A lot of these kids are now so familiar with the notion of violence in classrooms that they don't much think about it on, on a conscious level. But they are being influenced, I believe, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, by their parents who are terrified right. about this. You know, I, I, I remember parents being terrified of, of children being kidnapped. That was, And that wasn't in, in my generation. That was my generation, the baby boomers who had kids. Yes, and they would. They would. I, I mean, growing up, we'd go on the street. We'd go. There'd be twenty kids in the street. We'd all play, and then it became you had to have play dates. You had to have things set up for you because parents were afraid of kids. I, I mean, I, I'm sixty. Somebody sixty four years old. I know. I don't know one kid that was kidnapped, but but again, the fear yes. of something happened to your child yeah. because you hear about it again. Stranger you, danger, heard it. right? Stranger and, danger, and that, and that was that was our generation of having kids. Yes, absolutely, and. Uh, there, there was a reason for that. It was the, that was the nascent beginnings of media driving home what may have been a false narrative. I remember hearing fifty thousand children a year 
are disappear. Right. And I, I heard that so often to one day on the air, I said, where does that number come from? And when you dig into it, you find out a lot of it's divorce run- cases. People, and runaways. And, and runaways like and all that. that. There weren't 50,000 people being snatched mm-hmm. by, by strange strange people. Right. But but the fear was, was, was created. Right. And now the parents' fear of when my child goes to school, are they coming home? Absolutely. Peter Shore is our guest. Peter is the founder and CEO of Retreat Behavioral Health. We're talking about mental health issues that are confronting us and the work being done at places like Retreat. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We'll return with uh, with Peter and uh, Maggie straight ahead. But this is the portion of the program where I give you a phone number for Retreat. And I tell you every week, I hope you never, ever have to use it. And I know that uh, Peter and everybody in Retreat hopes you never have to use this. But this disease arrives unannounced. No one's ever ready for it. No one ever plans ahead. And they have to make extraordinarily difficult decisions under enormous pressure and often don't know what to do. I mean, I guess you can Google stuff, but it won't give you uh, the kind of answers you're going to need. So that's why uh, Peter said, give them our phone number and make sure they understand that we're we're there as a resource. We'll we'll help them in any way we can. Their reputation is um, uh, well-established. They've helped lots and lots of people at retreat, but we're not here to tell you it's the only way you can get sober. Here's their phone number. You know you have those fire and uh, emergency numbers on the magnets on your refrigerator, um, poison control. They're up there in an emergency. This number should be in a drawer someplace. 855-859-8808. That's how you reach Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Here's what I guarantee you. When you call that someone, an actual person, will will answer answer the, the phone and uh, just tell them what your question is. You, you'll get some uh, maybe life-saving information from them. 855-859-8808, Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Their CEO and founder, Peter Shore, is our guest, along with his corporate director of alumni services, Maggie Hunt. You just heard me do the retreat premier addiction treatment uh, tagline. Yeah. There's some exciting news about changes. Yeah, you're not going to be saying that much longer. I know that. Tell us, tell us what's afoot for you guys. Well, retreat has always treated people holistically, the whole person. And what we've seen over the years, probably north of 80% of the, of the population that comes in has some mental disorder that goes untreated. And if that goes untreated, nothing changes. You know, it's just a vicious cycle that keeps going and going and going. Not necessarily everybody's going to need that, but a great majority of the people today have some kind of mental disorder that we need to treat. So we made a conscious decision. I mean, years ago, we've always treated this on, on, on a peripheral way, but now we, we received our mental health license in Pennsylvania. And uh, we're rebranding ourselves to have the name Retreat Behavioral Health because we are a complete behavioral health company now where we treat not only the addiction piece, but the mental health piece. Um, you guys were at the forefront, as you say, even before this, uh, this uh, ch- change of, uh, of uh, branding. Um, the condition that you're referring to is c- uh, called co-occurring. Well, even more than co-occurring disorders. I mean, it, it really now, is, a, is a, a mental health facility. It's not an acute psychiatric hospital. That's not what it is. It's a it's, it's, uh, mental health facility where we've always had – you know, a patient was, you know, showed signs of schizophrenia or something like that, and they weren't uh, able to uh, regulate their medication. We'd have to send them to the word higher level of care. Well, now we are the higher level of care. We don't have to do that. And we could, we can manage the patient. We can, you know, 
get them stabilized so they can stay in treatment and take care of both the mental health problem and the addiction piece. In your experience, Maggie, how, how common is it for people to have a behavioral or a, uh, a mental health component part of their substance abuse? Oh, yeah. I mean, it happens all the time. And actually, specifically, um, especially for females, a lot of their co-occurring disorders come out once they put the substance down. Um, so for a lot of females um, who struggle with like suicidal ideation or eating disorders, um, they'll put the substance down and they'll pick right up on um, you know purging or binging or not eating anything at all. Um, so we, use, I, we see it all. I see it all of the time. When I was working, um, I worked second shifts um, and facilitated groups all the time. Um, and it, it affects, I would say, more than half of our population. Uh, Peter, you'll be prepared then to handle all kinds of uh, situations, Tra- uh, trauma, trauma, PTSD. Yeah, all, all, all kinds of situations like that. And it's it's you know, it could probably be you know you don't get a lot of time for mental health patients. So a diagnosis of mental health, you won't get the same length of time you will for an addiction. But the outpatient part of it, where you get individual counseling, all these different services that psychiatric services and medication management and things like that, what's really going to keep the person in a, in a, in a, a straight path. So the addiction piece becomes secondary after that. Once you start dealing with the mental health issues and they've put the, the, the uh, substance down, now, now the work starts. So how will that work practically from, from you know, a ground level at, at retreat? If I come here and I want to be treated for substance abuse and I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about my, my emotional state, uh, will I be directed to a certain group of people, certain uh, techniques? Yeah. I mean, it, it will mostly happen uh, – like we, we do it now. We, I mean, we identify people with, with you know, different issues, especially young women with trauma and things like that. We, we identify that now, and we have specialty groups for them. But the aftercare part of it is where it comes difficult because there aren't any many mental health facilities that there no will, s- yeah for a step down of of a PHP and IOP. And so there's it, no like sober living right. facility. So you send them to a drug and alcohol PHP IOP. They're not getting the help they need. They really need to get something on 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 their on the mental health side of it. You know, when people have said to me, well, "How does how do you even know what kind of a facility you, you need to go to? What should what should you you be looking for?" I always tell them, uh, "You'll know a lot about the, the place you're going to by the the first people you start to talk to. That process, that in I guess you guys call it intake. What uh, you know when you evaluate people when they because they don't know what they need. I mean, they know they have a problem, yeah. but they don't know what they need. T- t- can you explain a little bit about what that ha- how that happens well, m- here? Most people coming in are pretty toxic." So they don't know. It's hard to do an assessment when someone's toxic. So right. you have to really wait till they they they've come down a little. And and even that, you know, a lot of people come in. and They say I'm bipolar. I was diagnosed as bipolar. They, they diagnose diagnose someone with bipolar disorder when they're in their throngs of addiction. <laughs> it's just a waste of time and a waste of energy to say that because it's how do you know it's not the drugs causing the up and down mood swings? So we we have to detox them for whatever substance they have and do a real proper uh, assessment. I mean. We do an assessment when they first come in. It's like social, get all their information, talk to family members, find out any information they might have on that. It's a, it's a whole process. We want to get as much statistics as we can on someone to really help them to see what's the best fit for them. Mm-hmm. What, is, what do they need? What's their needs? Mm-hmm. Well, what can people expect in terms of the timeline here from the moment they show up at, for instance, retreat to getting into the you know getting a bed or something? How, 
How long is that process? Well, I just wanted to answer your question before that because yeah. you said about the intake and for people. I mean, for family members, when they if they're calling and they, they want to find like that perfect facility for their for their child or their loved one, that intake, that first person that they talk to, that does have a big impact on them. I know, like for my mom, when she was looking at a facility, the first person who she talked to, they, like that gave her a listening ear and told her about the program that they offered. That was where she wanted to send me at that time. Um, and so luckily for us, we have a call center where people can call. We can give them all of the information and we can do that as well. Um, but to your to your other question, what was the other question that you asked me before? Uh, what's the time? Is there a typical timeline? Somebody shows up here in crisis. Oh. How shows quickly? In, in, they're there. How the process works is yeah. that there's a phone call made. Yeah. Right. And they'll call our admissions department. Admissions department will do a, 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 a short assessment take all their information on substance and this and that. They'll verify their insurance benefit that they have for this level of service they want to come in. And then, uh, depending on where the patient is, and it could be a matter of minutes to hours, we'll send transportation to go pick up that patient. Then they get picked up, they come, and they see an intake counselor immediately. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as soon as they get there. And they assess the situation, they talk to them, they see, they get all the information, vital, in- we have nursing come down, take vital signs, make sure they're they're stable, uh, get all that information, call into the insurance company, you can't call into the insurance company until the patient's in front of you. Uh, and get all that information, set that up, w- within, sometimes within an hour, they're admitted and, and in a bed already. What what um, what kind of advice can you give family members who um, have made that call, think this is the facility they want to get their their loved one to, and then the loved one starts to resist it or is foot dragging? Is there any advice you can give people in situations like that? To I know when your drivers are guests on the show, they are such an critical link. They're the last mile to get somebody here. So they've heard all the excuses and pull over, let's have one drink before we uh, <laughs> we time. go, all that stuff. What, what about family members? Is there any advice you can give, Mag, to somebody who goes, okay, I, I got the place, let's go, and then they start you know, dragging their feet? Well, I would probably have, tell family members to take it a step ahead of time, have everything set up and ready to, ready to go if somebody is resistant before. Usually you know if, if, if somebody's going to, like if they're going to go in willingly or if there's going to be a little bit of resistance. But it's hard. I mean, that's the biggest thing that, that family members struggle with. Um, having support around you when you're ready to make the decision to go, um, it, it's hard. In Pennsylvania, there's no laws that can mandate somebody to drug and alcohol inpatient treatment. Um, so it's one of the biggest hurdles that parents and family members deal with yeah, all the time. There are no bars uh, at a, a facility like retreat. No. Uh, and, all, and that's sort of, I mean, there are circumstances I can certainly see where someone ought to be committed to a facility because they're a danger to themselves well, or others. Yeah, that, and that's what, what you call in, in, in Pennsylvania is Act 302, mm-hmm. where you throw to someone to a, a mental health facility, and they're there for at least 72 hours for evaluation, and maybe longer, depending on what the evaluation would say. And I always tell people, I'm going to 604 you. And they say, what's that? I go, well, you're acting so crazy that I'm going to do it twice. I need you twice. Yeah. Huh? Um, but generally speaking, uh, it, it's kind of uh, oxy, oxymoronic to expect that you can force somebody yeah, against yeah. their will to come to a treatment facility. It's even worse than that. You know, when, a, when an 18-year-old kid comes in and parents bring him in, and the parents are, are so involved and entrenched in this, they want their kids to do really well, and the kid says, well, I don't want my parents to know anything that's going on here. They're an adult. You know, HIPAA laws say we can't tell anybody anything because they said that. 
terrible. I mean, parents, they don't understand that. They just, what do you mean? I'm paying for this. I want to know what's going on. I said, and, you know, we wish we can tell you, but they, they, they said that they don't want you to know anything. We have to respect them as an adult, even though they act like a child and they're your child, that we can't re- uh, release any information on that patient. It's, it, it's really heartening to see a family member hear that because they want to know that their kid's doing well. Uh, and we're going to take a break here now, but before we do, uh, this one last um, notion with regard to that initial period of time. How soon does the family find out what their role in the treatment's going to be? Because a lot of people, as I say, think they can drop this problem off, go away, and someone will call us when it's better. Do you tell them almost immediately, look, we have families involved in this and we support do. We do. We do family workshops. Uh, the therapist will do a family uh session with the it depends again you know we have to take everyone's an individual you know the families could be the part of the problem too you know we have to we have to kind of sort it out before we make any decisions on what kind of family participation that's going to be part of this process peter shore uh, and uh, maggie hunt from retreat behavioral health soon soon uh and uh, more of recovery radio straight ahead please don't go away Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano with you. We hope, listen, we hope you're finding us. We're everywhere. We are everywhere. Finer podcasts are available. And I can list them all for you now, but you know them. Spotify and Google Listen and iTunes. We're we're all over. Recovery Radio is there. We're also on the radio in the uh, Delaware Valley area. So you're probably catching us one way or another. Our guest has been uh, Peter Shore. Peter is the founder and CEO of Retreat Behavioral Health. Their new uh, healthcare program, under the banner of Synergy uh, Healthcare Programs is what we've been talking about. Uh, this is a couple of days after uh, Peter and his group have opened a uh, third facility now in the community, this one in West Philadelphia in the, around the Penn campus, one in Lansdowne uh, that opened last month, and uh, the uh, one in Akron that's been here for a very long time. Th- these are, as, as Peter put it earlier, um, in, in the same context of the urgent care clinics you see getting the kind of mental health people need closer to the problem and more immediately uh, available to them so uh, that's that's what we want to let you know is available now uh, peter before we leave the issue of homelessness we've been at war now in afghanistan for ever and certainly the a couple of iraq wars in between and we have a lot of returning vets they are a unique, I don't know if they're a unique problem, but they are another subset of the problem of mental health uh, situations. Are you, you guys deal with PSS, uh, post-traumatic stress? And we all do, that? we do. But, it, and, and again, it's not only combat vets that suffer from that. It's something that it, it, it has to be stressed, you know, more often about, you know, when, when you know, now we, we have been at, 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 at uh, you know, an unrecognized war, but a war in Afghanistan and Iraq and and our and our fine young women and, and and men get sent there and 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 put in harm's way. But when when someone joins the armed services, they don't know if tomorrow they're going to be called up for a war. They go into the armed services and all good intentions of protecting our country, uh, and 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 that they should always be be put up on a pedestal and thanked and for their service to our country because they don't know that. And we get we we do a lot of of, of VA work with with. Uh, not just local VAs from from all over uh, the state and all over uh, the Northeast and in Florida uh, and also in in Washington, where a lot of vets are coming in. Some of them are not combat vets, but have suffered from some form of PTSD or or mental health issues. 
You know, a lot of people who go into the armed services, uh, some of them are, are the disenfranchised, and they think that that's going to be the answer because they don't know anything else to do, and that's their last last uh, step they can they can think of is joining our armed forces. And it, it doesn't change if you're suffering from mental illness. It's going to be the same while you're in the Army. Some some get dishonorably discharged because of their mental illness, or some go through the whole process, and when they leave, again, they're st- they don't know what to do. And and we don't want our 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 vets to to suffer without any kind of help. And we got to find what what do they need? You know, in Florida alone, fifty three thousand vets are homeless. It's 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 a mind boggling number. I, I don't. I think there's over a million in the United States that of vets that are are homeless. And and why? Because a lot of them have mental health issues. You know, when we see vets, they and they've gone through the system. You know they're 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 beaten and battered down, and they just they just feel like you know it's just going to be another place. So you know we have to reach them. We have to find a way to reach them, and and we talk about different kinds of therapies and and, and to do and and really show compassion to them. And you see a change. You know I've had vets who've come down and, and we've treated, and when they first came as patients, they were horrible patients because they've been through the system and it's tough, and they just thought it's just going to be the same. And after a while, and seeing it's not the same, and you see this like this this total metamorphosis of someone who's who was suffering and 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 gave up on life to come back, and you know, and I've had, I have several of them that have come back, and now they work for us, and they're the most amazing employees who help other vets coming in and and tell them, you know what, it's going to be all right if we can do this, and let us help you, let us open up to us, don't don't close the doors. Yeah, it's uh, too often the case that we, um, as a society, will uh, put up with, and as individuals, will endure suffering yeah. uh, as, as sort of the way it's supposed to be. Well, that's the way it's supposed to be, and it's not supposed to be that way. Yeah. No one's supposed to suffer. People suffer, but you're not. It's not your birthright to suffer. No. Uh, in a couple of minutes, we have left uh, two things. Um, you're not a psychos, but you're not. A, you're not no, a, we're not an acute psychiatrist. Not acute psychiatrist. So we, we, we're putting that aside. In your view, as a professional in this field, when should someone reach out for a mental health issue that is not something as serious as schizophrenia? When should someone go? I got to talk to somebody. Don't discount schizophrenia either, because we do get patients that are schizophrenic. But if you're compliant on their medications, we can help them. And I've had many schizophrenic patients come in that we've been able to help. Uh, when do you reach out? Again, if you're, if you're reaching out yourself, it's you know again you have to make that decision on you know have you have you decided that you don't want to feel the way you feel anymore. If you're a family member, or a loved one, or, or, or a friend, and you see a change in, in in a pattern of behavior, you know you, you need to point that out to them. So and 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 maybe make a phone call for them. And how do they get help? Well, I wanted to ask you that. So if a family member is worried about somebody. And and uh, they don't know where to turn. A facility like the one in West Philadelphia or the Lansdale, that's a place they can pick up the phone and go, tell me, phone tell me what I what, – and, and that's, that's – my, my goal was to be a resource center, not necessarily coming to retreat. Be a resource center where they tell us what it is. We make an assessment or they can come down and we'll do an assessment for free and we'll tell them this is the kind of services that this person needs. And that's important that people understand that. Well, it's great. I, I, I'm excited by uh, by this. I'm sure you're excited by Synergy and their uh, healthcare programs now. And uh, Retreat just keeps doing great work. We we appreciate your involvement with the program as well. It's always 
Great to have Peter Shore on the program. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Steve. I want to remind you all for or thank you for joining us on Recovery Radio. It's brought to you by, as I said, Retreat Behavioral Health. So, again, we remind you, if you or a loved one need help, there it's there 24-7. I'll give you the phone number. Again, 855-859-8808. That's 855-859-8808. Next time, see you. Bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.